together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for the canon, completed canon, so that we can dig in to Scripture, the truth that sets us free. Thank you for the tough lessons also, Father, for we know that with Scripture these things are designed for that very purpose to set us free. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and make even an evening like this one a reality. We do just ask your blessings on this evening's message. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, Gospel, Salvation, Sanctification, Part 49. First, thank you, Scott. Uh, no review tonight of Scott's lessons. I guess they were that sentence. Fantastic that uh, he just wanted me to get right back to business. So, uh, anyways, thank you very much. Uh, job well done, as always. Um, we are, again, on gospel, salvation, sanctification. Interestingly, we are stalled, if you want to call it that. Um, that's a human term, of course, because the Spirit's not stalled. But as far as the curriculum goes, we're stalled between salvation perspective and sanctification perspective. So, as is the case... Uh, anytime I go on vacation, we need to reorient ourselves to our primary course of study, namely that gospel, salvation, and sanctification. Uh, again, we are still between these two phases. We've done the good work, uh, the diligence on salvation perspectives. Remember, there are three tenses from man's perspective. From God's perspective, obviously, uh, it's one big saving plan. Uh, from man's perspective, because we're on a timeline, we're on a construct known as time, we have three tenses, uh, positional, experiential, and ultimate, uh, namely past, present, and future. We also then turned our attention to sanctification perspective, since that was the last part of our title, sanctification. From God's perspective, again, he sees the whole parade all at once, um, but he's intent on sanctifying his own, and that really just means to make holy or to set apart for his purposes. And I need you to focus on that term purposes or purpose this evening because it's going to come up a multitude of times. Uh, we did get started on the three phases, positionally, experientially, and ultimately, uh, but we got uh, sort of on the sidebar, and that was namely on predestination. We had begun addressing positional sanctification uh, in this framework on the board, but again, the Spirit stopped us and said, I need to do some work with this congregation before we get into the nuts and bolts of the specifics of that framework up there. Uh, and I need to talk to them about predestination. I want them to understand two specific categories of predestination. First, we've done this work already before I left. You were predestined to suffer for Christ's sake. You were predestined to suffer for Christ's sake. And again, there were two categories that we carved out in Scripture. The first one being, you were predestined to suffer for Christ's sake. We synthesized our work with this add-on uh, principle. The simple fact is that you were predestined to suffer. Jesus' suffering was a blessing to him, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. That's Hebrews 12.2. We believers are called the same way to suffer for Christ's sake. For example, for the gospel, for to you it has been granted. That was that Greek word, uh, charizomai. It means uh, grace. Suffering is a grace gift then, to suffer uh, 
is a grace gift, and that's part of your predestination plan. Again, it, uh, for you, to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. That was Philippians 1.29. And so the conclusion there, at least the, the corollary, was that we want to always appropriate grace rightly in our lives then. If suffering is a grace gift, then we need to understand even what type of suffering we are suffering, so to speak. So in other words, grace abounds regardless of the type of suffering we are under, but it's critically important to our spiritual growth that we realize what type it is. That was the crux of so much of our good work on predestination and being or being predestined to suffer. We then turned our attention to the other side of predestination, namely prosperity. So in one sense, we are predestined to suffer. In another sense, we are predestined to prosper. By grace, you are predestined to prosper then for Christ's sake. Only the prosperity emphasized in the Bible is eternally weighted. And we went through all the scripture to amplify this point that the prosperity emphasized in the Bible is on God's scale of values. And he owns the bag of weights that would go on that very scale. So the Spirit made us take this portion of our study, for lack of a better term, very personal. He made it even a national issue. And then he drilled down into our local assembly, into the very souls of each one of us, looking and plucking um, at our religions, let's say, our personal economies, the way that we go about living. Do we have a pocket full of grace or a pocket full of creature credit? Which economy are we truly functioning in? And so he made it very personal. And it's inescapable. Once you see the scripture, it literally is inescapable. And we're going to see a little bit more this evening on this topic. But it's very personal. But remember that, as I've taught in the past, every person in here has a purpose as well, a very personal purpose. So while he's getting very personal on things that are somewhat uncomfortable, it's for the purpose of setting you free and then for the purpose of setting you apart, which is where we're going with sanctification. So there's a, there's a flow to our curriculum. He's not, just trying to <laughs> he's not just trying to make you feel bad about the way you've been living your life. He's not just trying to oppress you or you know, depress you in any sense. He's trying to set you free. Uh, but the only way that happens is if you do take such things very personal. So again, he's made this portion very personal as if to say, you know, something like, quote, hey, listen, God puts you in this prosperous environment where most things have been spoon-fed to you, for example, relative to other countries, etc. Will you be passing the test? That's the question. And that's sort of where he left us before I went on vacation. Will you be passing that test? Just as a side note, I had no idea we'd be spending this much time on this subject, truly. Not one iota. I thought it was going to be half a class, and it's been, what, three or four now? But in retrospect, suffice to say that I'm not surprised, given all the content that we've had to consider in Scripture, and I think to top it off, people need, frankly, ample time, sometimes lots of it, 
in order to step back and evaluate their own lives. These are deeply rooted issues. Prosperity in this country, prosperity for most of you listening to my voice right now, is a deeply rooted issue. So as we'll continue to see, or continue to see, prosperity testing is a very subtle reality for those who own the world's goods. I haven't done the statistics in a while, but let's just say there's a lopsidedness. There's an awful lot of wealth in this country. By world standards, there's an awful lot of wealth in this room right now. So the question again is, will you be passing the test? Hence this principle from our study. Since we live in a prosperous nation and the word of God says he will prosper us, shouldn't every Christian take the time to see if their definition of prosperity matches up with God's? If we don't, aren't we running the risk of thinking one thing but living another? Prosperity is interesting because it poses an immediate, unavoidable test. This test can be summarized with an allusion to Jesus' parable of the ten miners up here on the board. So let's call it prosperity testing since we all agree that everyone in this room has a certain level of prosperity. And the parable of the ten miners says, I will give you certain forms of grace. I will give you even advantage over other people, other children of mine. And when I do that, when I afford you a certain kind of grace, the question is, what are you going to do with it? Will you pass the test? Because my command says, do business until I return. So how will you, quote, do business with God's grace? Will you keep the minors for yourself as if you've earned them, 1 Corinthians 4, 7? Or will you regard one another as more important than yourselves, Philippians 2, 3 to 4? Go to 1 Corinthians 4, 7 so we can see that amplification of the question, will you keep the minors for yourself as if you've earned them? Because that is, let's face it, that is the American way. I mean, we're also a very charitable country, as far as I know as countries go. But we tend to, even as individuals, give charitably when there's a surplus. We tend to give when there's a surplus after our own needs and wants are fulfilled. And then sometimes even grudgingly. As if we have a right to those that grace because we've quote-unquote earned it. But you could be literally the same person, same personality, same IQ, same savvy, same everything, and instead of being born in a prosperous country or a prosperous situation, you could have been placed in a tribe somewhere without water or electricity. So you have to say to yourself, then <laughs> maybe it wasn't you. Maybe you just got, quote, lucky. And if God gave you those things and placed you there, then to whom much is given, much is required. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, For who regards you as superior? What do you, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? We forget where we came from, in other words. 
many of us are so very grateful at salvation just to be saved. And the world lulls us away. And we become like spoiled little brats. What do you have that you did not receive? We recently studied the second passage as well. Again, the emphasis is on how are you going to do business. Philippians 2, 3 to 4, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. These are the things we have to start synthesizing. Okay, on one hand, we all agree that we have prosperity. And then, on the other hand, it says, regard others as more important than yourselves. And we also have, what do you have that you didn't receive? We also have, do business with my grace until I return. So you have to synthesize all these things and reconcile them in your own soul so that you arrive at the inescapable truth, which is it's very likely that you've been living for yourself. The highlight of studying that passage was up here on the board, regard one another as more important than yourselves, describes what true humility looks like. We looked at Romans 12.10, Galatians 5.13, Ephesians 5.21, 1 Peter 5.5, Galatians 5.13 in the Amplified reads this way, For you, my brothers, were called to freedom, only do not let your freedom become an opportunity for the sinful nature, worldliness, selfishness, but through love, serve and seek the best for one another. In other words, if you've been given so much, then use it. Do business. Use it for others. In the parable of the ten miners, doing business refers to operating in his economy with his currency, which is grace. So, in other words, we ought to do the Lord Jesus Christ business, not our own. Grace is love. Think about it this way, a different perspective. We're going to come at this from a multitude of perspectives, a, multiple, a multitude of angles this evening as we're finishing up the work. But he's also saying, look at it from this way. Look at it from this way. Look at it from this way. Well, look at it this way. Grace is love. To do business with his currency, which is grace, is to love and lay down our lives for others. That's the greatest thing, right? That's what Jesus said. Greatest, greatest love of all. That's scripture, my friends. There's no escaping truth. There's no excuse for the self-absorbed. The practical side, up here on the board, from a, yet another angle, entitlement issues. You are not entitled to a prosperous life by world standards. When you were saved as an adopted child, you were entitled, in plus title, or title in hand, so to speak, to the wisdom in the word regarding truth, prosperity. So yeah, a lot of us have to drop this entitlement issue. We considered the wisest and wealthiest man of his, of his time, Solomon, for additional perspective. Go to Ecclesiastes 2.10. Ecclesiastes 2.10. So we consulted the wisest and richest man of his time. And he has lots and lots to say on wealth. what it is, what it isn't, specifically. But Ecclesiastes 2.10, we're going to jump around a little bit because we've read this before I left. 
Ecclesiastes 2.10. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. Let's go to verse 22. Verse 22. For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to a person who is good, now focus, this is our first point of concentration this evening. For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. So what you should see there are two distinctions worth noting. We have two distinctions worth noting here, and they're going to amplify what the Spirit's been saying on this subject all along. So concentrate. First, we have this. Wisdom and knowledge and joy. Who does God give these most precious divine prosperity gifts to? The answer in Scripture, to a person who is good in his sight. Who does God give wisdom and knowledge and joy to? To a person who is good in his sight. Who would be good? The good, faithful servant. The one who does business with his grace. On the contrary, we have the task of gathering and collecting. Who does God curse with the loss of worldly prosperity? The answer, to the habitual sinner. He says, go ahead, gather it up to yourself. Gather it, collect it. I'm just going to take it away from you in the end. So any esteem you're placing in those things, you're going to lose it anyways. You could have been having everlasting gifts. You could have had divine, precious gifts such as wisdom, knowledge, and joy. But you chose to hoard. You chose to gather unto yourself. And your lesson is not going to be grace, gifts, knowledge, and joy, etc., Yours is going to be the agony of losing it all in the end and figuring out at the end it was all striving after the wind. So which person are you right now, honestly? I'll look down. Because <laughs> everybody has different reactions to these things, right? We all should have some reaction. That's a fact. If you think, ah, oh, this, this is totally not talking about me. I think you're on another planet. But which person are you right now, honestly? I mean, who, who can you honestly relate to? 
And before you answer that, remember James 4.17, which states, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is a sin. So if you see all the scripture and you're being convicted and you refuse, you still know the right thing to do, but you don't do it, to you it's a sin. What Solomon is essentially saying is that for the person who gathers and collects unto self, for self, by self, that person will be cursed in the end, realizing it was all striving after the wind. To put it into perspective, what could be more fruitless and defeating than gathering stuff unto oneself for a variety of lustful reasons, only to have God hand it over to someone else? I mean, at the end of your life, that's going to happen. You could have a bazillion dollars, you know, the mansion. This whole, you could have a lot of things that you've collected unto yourself. It's going to be given away. You're not taking it with you. And you will realize that. So what could be more fruitless and defeating than gathering stuff unto oneself for a variety of lustful reasons, only to have God hand it over to someone else. And I personally believe, with all of my heart, mind, and soul, that everyone here, some much more than others, have worked hard at the task of gathering and collecting. Everyone here is guilty of this thing. And regardless of what I say from this pulpit, or more importantly, what the Word convicts them of, some will continue to do so, living for self, failing the prosperity test. Let's come at this from yet another angle. Up here on the board, divine wisdom regarding prosperity. In order to possess true wisdom regarding prosperity, you must first reconcile your life with the likes of, you know, Scripture. Not what you've even learned or what you thought you've learned in the past or what you've been taught in the past, the things that made your ears tickle. You mean if God loves me, he's just going to blow my socks off with all kinds of world prosperity, worldly wealth? That's his intent? That's how he's going to really, truly make me happy? Is by building me up by world standards? Even though he has a different scale and a different bag? So, before you go any further, you have to reconcile the literal scripture. Ecclesiastes 2, we haven't gotten Ecclesiastes 5, maybe on Thursday. Acts 20, 35, more blessed to give than to receive. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Philippians 2, 3 to 4, those are things we just studied. And especially 1 Corinthians 2, 16, which says we have the mind of Christ. So you have to ask yourself, well, what did Jesus Christ think of worldly prosperity? You don't have to read very far in the red letters. He usually was trashing the rich. Why is that? Why did he say it's harder or it's easier for a camel to, to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to come to him? Why did he say those things? Why was he always bashing the wealthy? Isn't it obvious? So do yourself a favor and jot those verses down and read them on your own before bed tonight and see what the Spirit reveals to you. 
For those of you who have taken the time to read the entire New Testament sometime after, say, the past year of studies, or maybe you're halfway through, or maybe you're a quarter through, challenge yourselves right now to see if the, quote, mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16, the very heart of Christ, had anything whatsoever to do with you gathering and collecting unto yourself. Read the Bible. If you were to read the entire New Testament and you saw the mind and the heart of Christ, did it have anything whatsoever to do with you gathering and collecting unto yourself? Is that what he said? He said, believe in me and I'm going to give you stuff. Is that what this is all about? I mean, is the... Let me put it this way. The real, this is a real technical challenge for you. I mean, it's doable, in other words. It's a technical challenge, not a, let me think about it. It's a technical challenge. It means you can actually go to Scripture tonight and look to your heart's content and see if you can find Jesus or one of his devout disciples even saying what you think you believe about prosperity. Or, what, or peddling what the world has to say about worldly prosperity. See if you can find anywhere in Scripture Him saying those things. If anything, you're going to find the opposite. You're going to find Him fighting in His disciples tooth and nail, the way I am, for your benefit, so that you can be set free from the bondage that is tying your self-esteem to the creature credit aspect of worldly prosperity. So this is a real technical challenge for all of you. Go try to find such a sentiment from the lips of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, or Paul, or anyone in a righteous state of affairs. See if you can find where any of the godly promote worldly prosperity in the absence of the purpose. And here's our word. See if you can find where any of the godly promote worldly prosperity in the absence of the purpose of using it to serve others. See if you can do that. And I don't mean pluck out one scripture. See, there it is. God's going to supply for my needs and abundantly. There it is. Read the rest of the Bible. Look for the actual heart of Christ. You won't. You won't find that thing. I think of the sophomores, and they'll argue that, you know, even Paul had a, quote, an abundance at times, as amplified or implied in his discourse to the Philippians. So for the sake of argument, let's pursue that for a moment to prove the Spirit's point here this evening. Go to Philippians 4.11. Just so none of you get a little bit sophomoric on me and say, well, Paul had abundance. Yes, he did at times. He admitted it. I don't know of any scripture that said he was, by worldly standards, super wealthy once he was converted. I know he had a money, he came from money, but who knows what happened. Philippians 
Not that I speak from want. So the sophomores might pluck this out of their little bag of tricks to justify their, their, themselves. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Well, good for, what a good old chap Paul was, wasn't he? <laughs> I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. There it is. You see, he was prosperous. No, that means he learned how to live. Romans 1.17 says, A righteous man shall live, same living, by faith. Faith says, if I give, God will pour out more into my lap. If I sow sparingly, I will reap sparingly. If I sow abundantly, I will reap abundantly. So if I have abundance, then guess what I should do with that abundance? I should sow abundantly so that I may reap abundantly. That whole process is called doing business. So you, there's, there's never the absence. You can't go to specific scripture and say, you see, I'm supposed to be prosperous. I'm supposed to live in this prosperity. First of all, get your definition right. That's the world's prosperity, first of all. If you have any prosperity, what does the Bible... Finish the sentence. What does the Bible say? So, let's continue. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So, first of all, let me give you this. Prosperity, when you see the word prosperity or you see the idea of it or the concept of it in Scripture, just remember one thing. It always has context. Context is key, remember? Paul was trying to state something there. The prosperity and abundance that Paul speaks of in Philippians 4.12 must be understood in context. Paul is not implying he ever strove for abundance. Is he? Paul is not implying he ever strove for abundance. Rather, when he did possess it, this same man would give it away as a result of gracing others out. Hmm. 2 Corinthians 8, 7 to 15, 9, 5 to 15. So when you think of Paul, for the sake of not becoming sophomoric and justifying your own level of worldly prosperity, finish the sentence. Where was his heart? Be honest with yourself. What was Paul's heart? Was he saying, I want to have worldly prosperity for me? Or do I know how to live in prosperity? Those are two different things. Living in prosperity implies he's passing the test. He's doing business. What he's really saying is that the in the normal course of events, there will be times when your income outpaces your needs, and vice versa. I mean, who hasn't, you know, at the end of the week or something like that, at the end of the month, you pay all your bills and you got like an abundance, right? Who hasn't had that happen to them? Once in a while, right? Just once in a while. Some people are like, never. I just blow it all. Comes in, it goes out. Right? And vice versa. Where, you know, 
income or needs outstrip income. That's all he's saying. That was his primary point. But the motivation isn't to to acquire in abundance for self. Go to 2 Corinthians 8, 7. 2 Corinthians 8, 7. Now, when I read these two passages with you from 2 Corinthians, I want you to look for the spirits of the letter. There are some nuances going on in that. I don't want you to get tangled up or tied up in the, the weeds. Look at what he's saying. Look at what he's saying about prosperity and abundance. And look at what he's applauding in those who have abundance. What are they doing that pleases God? 2 Corinthians 8, 7. That's what it means to learn to live in prosperity. In prosperity or not prosperity, you do whatever is pleasing to the Lord. 2 Corinthians 8, 7. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge, and in all eagerness or earnestness, and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others, the sincerity of your love also. Remember, grace is love. Remember that principle. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. But now finish doing it also, so that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may be also the completion of it by your ability. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. Think of it this way. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. Up here on the board again, prosperity always has a context. The prosperity and abundance that, same writer by the way, The prosperity and abundance that Paul speaks of in Philippians 4.12 must be understood in context. Paul is not implying he ever strove for abundance. Rather, when he did possess it, this same man would give it away as a way of gracing out others. Let's check out the other passage now. Go to 2 Corinthians 9.5. 2 Corinthians 9.5. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. We've studied that recently. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That reeks of maturity. It reeks of maturity. That's why, as I before I left on vacation, I said, don't force this. Don't 
hyperanalyze it and get stuck in what I call analysis paralysis. If you're kind of screwy on all of this, take it in humility and see what he does with that humility. He will change you. I promise. He did it to me. And I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I'm certainly better off than I used to be on this subject. Truth be told. But it was about humility. How did I know he was going to change that? I, I mean, he just did. That's what the Word of God does. It washes away all the garbage, and it fulfills your cup. And you begin to realize that the greatest things in life really are what Jesus taught. And he never taught, just gather unto yourself. He taught a parable about a barn, remember? Don't. He said, do business with my grace, and I'll bless you out. So there is that backdrop of all of this, that it's not a forced thing either. But this is how you learn, right? You're not going to be changed overnight. This is how it starts. And in humility, if you stay humble, he will change you. And you might be surprised. You know, if we're all here still five years from now, you might be surprised what he's done. And you might look back at this lesson and go, yeah, geez, I remember. I had no desire whatsoever to do any of that. But now I do. So don't do that either. This is why we saw in 2 Corinthians 8 that Paul didn't want to lay down a command regarding giving. For he didn't want it to become a stumbling block either. I've been trying to do the same thing this whole time. This is hard to teach, by the way. It really is difficult to teach because it can become a stumbling block to some. Especially the super arrogant. The humble... They're going to take it on the chin, it'll sting, they might mumble a little bit, but then they'll go on their way. But for the arrogant people, it's a very fine line for a teacher, because the arrogant will take offense to it. And when they take offense to it, it then becomes a stumbling block. But all I can say to the arrogance is, you read the scripture. It's unavoidable, unless you're purposely trying to avoid it looking for loopholes to justify your own ridiculousness. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance. Okay, is that it? Oh, you mean there's more to that? For what? For every good deed. There you go. There's the purpose statement. Your abundance has a what? A purpose. Do you understand? If he blows your socks off, he's saying, now what are you going to do? Now what are you going to do? Your abundance has a purpose. You've been predestined to prosper. Amen? Okay. So if you've been predestined to prosper, and sanctification means to be set apart for his purposes, well, how do you think those things reconcile? You do the math in your own soul. It's right there in black and white, folks. You have an abundance for every good deed. For every good deed. That's the key to tonight's lesson. Verse 9, as it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your need for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not 
only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. You see what that produces, folks. Real giving, not just in word, but in deed. Real giving. When you have an abundance and someone else has a need. People are very grateful. Anybody ever been bailed out of a hole in their life? Right, You've been in a pickle, and it may not just be money. It could be a lot of things. And someone had some extra money or time or some skill. You know, Uncle Jimmy, thank God Uncle Jimmy's a lawyer because he got me out of that pickle. No, no. And how grateful were you? And how many times possibly did you say, thank God? Thank God that person took the extra time, talent, treasure that they had and bailed me out, got me out of that pickle. I had a real need. This person stepped up, closed the gap. Thanks be to God. Anybody ever been there? What do you think Paul's saying? But what if everybody who's gathering unto and collecting unto themselves, that doesn't happen? What happened to the thanksgiving to God? What happened to the angels who are rubbernecking at all of this? What happened? Verse 14. While they also by prayer on your behalf yearn for you because of your, the surpassing grace of God in you. And let's just put it all on the table. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So it's not just like, you know, you're like, oh, well, this, and I'll say, thanks be to God for his indescribable Everything just goes, Psh. nothing else matters. Nothing else matters in this world than your relationship with Christ. So let's not just put everything in perspective. Here we are hemming and hawing, right? Oh, well, I don't know. Should I do that? Or should I do that? I don't know what's enough, what's not enough, you know, and it's like, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Oh. Oh. He gave everything when he didn't have to. Kind of goes, everything goes right into perspective. He's just trying to give you some wisdom, folks. The more spiritually mature you are, the more likely you are to, quote, do business for Christ, not just in word, but in deed. 1 John 3.18 this implies grace, which means giving, for that is the greater blessing after all. Acts 20.35, more blessed to give than receive. The less mature don't understand this. Like I've been trying to say softly. It's not his end, in, it's not his end goal for you. It's okay for now. Everybody grows up spiritually. Not everybody gets this in the beginning. But as you mature, this will make more and more sense. That's what the Spirit's saying. For the less mature don't understand this, rather they are stuck living for self in the world's economy, where currency equals creature credit. So it's a maturity issue here. 1 John 3.18, just so you know, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Indeed, and you know, John was the rubber hits the road guy, right? He really was. He didn't pull any punches. He just said, listen, cut it out, stop talking, and start doing It's interesting, as I was off on vacation doing my own personal reading, I read one of the pastoral, actually I read all of them, but one of them stood out, and I noted a very real issue because prosperity was on my own heart. Stuff doesn't leave me just because I'm on vacation, right? It just doesn't. So I had this issue that I took with me on vacation. 
you know, how's the flock doing? How's the flock taking this? Who's humble? Who's arrogant? Who's growing? Who's stumbling? These things I take with me. You know, that's the way it goes. But as I was reading one of the pastoral epistles, I noted a very real, quote, issue in the churches that relates to the variety of wealth in the churches. Let's read this passage together and see if you can, quote, see what I see here on this particular subject. Go to 1 Timothy 2.9. So Paul was encouraging, exhorting Timothy in this letter. And this is what he wanted to remind his flock of. Now, if you're a woman, don't get upset. This isn't about, it was an issue, but the baseline principle holds true, okay, for both men and women. Even though I, I'm with Paul, I think there's a reason why he uses women here, because in some ways, men are different than women. Men fail in some ways more than women, and women seem to fail in the local assembly even, in some ways more than men. That's just the way it is. So don't just don't get all, you know, don't, don't stumble before we start if you are a woman, okay? All right, that's the best I can do. All right? But this is what it is, and you have to just listen. I didn't write the Bible. The Bible is right in front of us, right? So just saying. 1 Timothy 2.9. But keep in mind prosperity and how it can affect local assemblies even. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided. Now, it doesn't mean you can have braids. He's talking about coming in with a big to-do, you know what I'm saying? Like a, you know, if you're going to get married or something. None of that. Not parade, no parading, if that makes sense, okay? Not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. That was happening in that church. Women of wealth were parading. And he said, I don't want that in the churches. It's indicative of something going on in their souls, obviously. But a bigger problem is that it has a ripple effect. So if one person fails, it's a local assembly. Other women get jealous. That's the way it works. These are the realities of a ministry. So let's pluck this apart. Again, he says, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. Up here on the board, proper clothing. And this is specifically addressed to church worship time. In other words, like tonight, no parading. Modestly from Idos means avoiding anything that would cause shame. Discreetly from Sophrosuna means a woman is to be moderate in her dress. Moderate. There's two sides to moderation, too. There's the over the top, and then there's the under the bottom. All right? You don't want to distract anybody in either way, if that makes sense. Okay? And these are real issues. Why did he write them? Well, think about that. The Bible's only so big. And this is a pretty good portion of Scripture. That's because it's real. And I'm not saying this. I'm keeping it on Paul's shoulders right now on purpose so that I don't get the venom, you know. But the reality is, 
honestly, the, the reality is I've seen it plain as day. I've fought tooth and nail. I've had kind discussions with people on both sides of the fence when appropriate. I've even had people leave because of it. But anyways, Paul says, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing modestly and discreetly. So proper clothing modestly means avoid, avoiding anything that would cause shame. Discreetly means a woman is to be moderate in her dress. McDonald on discreetly in 1 Timothy 2.9. On the one hand, she will not seek to attract attention to herself by expensive, conspicuous fashions. These might tend to, typo, to provoke admiration or even jealousy from those who should be worshiping God. On the other hand, she should avoid attracting attention to herself by wearing clothes that are drab. The scriptures seem to teach a moderate, middle-of-the-road policy in regard to clothing. Now, we're not focused on the downside. We're focusing on prosperity, which would protect others from the person who comes in with the, you know, the parading as a function of wealth. So I hope you see what Paul is getting at here. Like so many things he teaches us in this magnificent age of grace, he's really looking out for others in the church. He's really looking out for others in the church, as do I, as a diligent shepherd, as you should know by now. Personally, I despise such things when I see them, and I have seen them. It's not rampant in this church, but I do see them from time to time. And it's not just with women, of course, but that's who Paul is addressing here. Parading can occur regardless of gender. 1 Timothy 2.9 again, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather, but rather, by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Now, focus on that. But rather, we have sort of a contrast, don't we? He's like, I don't want you to do this, but rather, up here on the board, literally means instead of, which implies no coexistence of these things. In other words, worshiping women cannot propose to, quote, offset their lack of modesty and discretion by, quote, doing good. One supplants the other in the heart of the humble woman. In other words, you don't, Paul's also not allowing logically for both. Just because you do good doesn't buy you chits with God that says, well, you can be a parading fool that's making others stumble. He's saying, throw that one out and replace it with good works with others in view if you're going to make a claim to godliness. That's what he's saying. So it is, there is a certain uniqueness to prosperity because if you ask prosperity, the more capable you are of parading. Right? I mean, not everybody can, can afford $10,000 pearls or a hairdo every Saturday night or expensive clothes all the time. Well, you know what I'm getting at? Not everybody can afford those things. So this is a function of prosperity. So one of the 
test of prosperity is keeping an eye out for others, especially in the local assembly. Because the last thing we want is one woman looking at another woman going, you see what she is. <laughs> right? And they're chirping on the other side. You see what that sex sex sex. Who needs that? Nobody got time for that? No? One person came. Who, honestly, does, do, we, do any of us need to deal with that kind of garbage? Isn't that like, I thought, the point is saying, I digress a little bit. I honestly hope, when I, when I catapulted out of high school, I really hoped and thought that it was over with. But the high school stuff just grows up. It's the same stuff. Everybody's just like old high school people. It's the same garbage. The popularity contests and, you know, comparing this and comparing that and chewing each other in the back and stabbing each other in the back. And it's like, it's like, oh, my God, grow up. Please, let's just learn the word of God. Right? You know what I'm saying? Now, I was the broke kid, so I'm not going to say I wasn't jealous sometimes. I'm wearing the kids with the holes. You know what I'm saying? You know, the kid's like, yeah, I got my little Jordan. They only do Jordan in those days, but you know what I mean. I don't know. So I would, I would stumble sometimes. But now I realize that's foolishness. Because then I was on the other side of the fence growing up, learning the other lesson, which was that you can make people stumble. Now I see the whole picture, and now I'm teaching it. These are the things that go on. But rather, literally means instead of. So don't get into the game of thinking that you're on some chit scale. Just because you do good, then you can parade. It doesn't work like that. We want you literally to supplant one for the other. Again, sophomoric women will tend to play the, quote, coexist game, refusing to moderate their appearance while cranking up their good deeds in other areas. That's not a just scale. Certainly not the way God's economy functions by grace. Because you know what? Grace doesn't keep score. That's all part of the creature code. That's putting God on a treadmill. I can See, I can act like a little bit more of an ass. So I feel good about myself in a worldly way. But I'm doing all this other good over here, right? So God's like, ah, I'll balance it out. That's not how grace works. Again, verse 10, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for woman, making a claim to godliness. Making a claim to godliness. Now, I guess you'd have to be kind of a jackass not to want to be godly at this function or this juncture in your life, right? But some people, I think what Paul's saying, some people might even be a little premature about it. And there's still some work he has to do. In individuals. So making a claim to godliness, it is proper from prepo in the Greek, becoming, befitting for a godly woman to, quote, do good works by dressing moderately, to facilitate fellowship and be an example to others to do the same. Contrarily, a woman who doesn't do such good works has no claim to godliness. That's what he's saying. If you want to claim godliness, then these are the things you do in the local assembly on that subject. Does that make sense? 
And of course it relates to prosperity. For some people, they don't have this option. For some people, they're never going to make anybody stumble with their $10,000 pearls because they're never going to own $10,000 pearls. You follow? So this really is marked just like this series, this part of the series on prosperity is marked to a certain group of prosperous individuals. Paul's just getting really down nitty-gritty to a practical example in the local assembly that I've even seen over the years. So it is proper, befitting, becoming for a godly woman to do good works by dressing moderately to facilitate fellowship and be an example to others to do the same. Contrarily, a woman who doesn't do such good works has no claim to godliness. Now, in your souls, I don't want to see any hands, in your souls, raise your hand if you desire to be a godly woman or a man. Because these principles baseline apply to both genders. Do you desire to be a godly person? And if you did raise your hand in your own soul, please follow God, uh, Paul's guidelines here, for my heart is with him. And I do have charge over this local assembly. And I, I have very little patience. I think it's godly impatience, but I deal with it. But I have very little, um, yeah, I guess I'll call it patience uh, with such things. There's enough things to deal with in a local assembly than to deal with parading. So my heart is with him. So just moderate yourselves in this church for the sake of others, always. And on the flip side, please don't show up like a slob either if you have the option. I'd rather you show up, period. But if you have the option, you know, don't show up a mess either because then you could be distracting somebody. I mean, I could be weird or goofy, but I've sat next to people that smelled so bad that I couldn't focus on anything before. Right? Lois, why are you looking at Bill? <laughs> Bill, take a bath, will you? You know what I mean? So moderate, remember, I'm just saying, moderate even though with the spirits picking on prosperity side, moderation in terms of dress and appearance is a two-sided coin. The Bible says go down the middle so that nobody's necessarily, you know, differentiated to some degree where it's going to become a stumbling block for others. Am I or was Paul trying to begrudge you of your so-called, quote, right to wear whatever you want? Not at all. Not at all. I'm really not interested in going into your wardrobe and going, okay, you can wear this. You can wear, that. You can wear those pumps. You can wear those shoes. Yep. Don't wear that braid. Don't wear that hairpiece. You know, wear this one instead. Don't be sophomoric about this. And don't look at the name. I speak as Paul did for the sake of unity and fellowship in the local assembly. And just FYI, I alluded to this earlier, but it's true. I have already had too many women, especially, leave this local assembly because of other women making them stumble. And unfortunately, they tend to take others with them. That's the downside. Yeah. Because one stumbles, they don't like that person. Whether it's right or wrong is not necessarily the issue. It happens. That's what I'm saying. I'm not trying to take sides. I'm saying it happens. 
You know how I know it happened? Because that person told me that that's why they left. And their whole family did. What the? Seriously? We're back in high school. That's my point. Are we back in high school? Yep, we're back in high school. So just be careful. And the people who made them stumble never knew. I would never tell them. Okay. The problem seems less pronounced, at least less verbalized with men, which is why the specific addressed by Paul here is to the women in the local assembly. In any case, I hope you get this point in the baseline connection back to prosperity, and, and I'm out of time. I'll give you this one last thing to think about before we close. Prosperity testing. Prosperity is a multifaceted test that includes not just one's own struggle with lusting, but also one's consideration of those without it and the possibility of making them stumble. There's always two sides to a coin. And all of it is prosperity testing. All of it, you see? How often does Paul, Paul used to say it with food and other examples, if you know something's going to make your brother stumble and you love them and you're the more mature, what should you do? Don't make them stumble. If they're an Listen, if they're a raging alcoholic, you don't crack open a bud when you're sitting with them. You don't do it. You follow? Those are, even though you have a right to. It's not the point. The point is we're supposed to be loving and serving others. So prosperity is a multifaceted test that includes not just one's own struggle with lusting it, but also one's consideration of those without it and the possibility of making them stumble. All right, let's just finish this up. We're a couple minutes over. Put some closure on the principles that instigated all of this. Let's just read it, and I'll close. Again, verse 9. We're still in 1 Timothy 2.9, right? Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Amen? All right, we'll continue on Thursday. Let's bow ahead. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.